Okay. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Again, before I forget, for those who are joining us now, next week is Thanksgiving, so we will not have a class. I'm sure people will be uh, somewhat tied up. So today, though, we are going to go focus on a section which is somewhat well-known, but what I like to do, what we like to do in this class is kind of revisit these sections from a new perspective, from a new, take it, take it fresh. So we are in the middle of a narrative over here, and this is Parshas Vayishlach is discussing, the first part of the Parsha discusses Yaakov's reunion with his brother Esav. Now, when we think of reunion, we normally think of nice, uh, everyone coming together and hugging and all that. It does end up well, but we know the lead-up to that moment is anything but straightforward or loving. Yaakov is petrified that Esav, his brother, is going to harm him, right? So he, what he does is he sets up a three-pronged strategy. His three-pronged strategy is as follows. First and foremost, he sends gifts. He tries to bribe his brother. His brother is not just by himself. His brother has hundreds of men with him who are powerful men, warriors, right? And so Yaakov is afraid that he is going to get killed, and so therefore he bribes his brother Esav. In addition, he prepares for the possibility of war. The Torah tells us that he divides the, the group that he's with into two groups so that they could wage war, and if need be, one group could flee, right? So he's trying to, to save whatever he can, salvage whatever he can. And the third thing that he does is he prays. He turns to God and he begs him for help. Okay, so that's considered the three-pronged um, strategy that Yaakov takes in preparing for this showdown with Asaph. Now, what we're about to read is what takes place the night before Yaakov meets Esav. So everything I told you is taking place in the days and the weeks before where he sends him all these gifts. He sends him tons and tons of animals and, and, and all different things. Um, and he's praying to God and he's preparing himself for the possibility of war. But then the night before, there's a very dramatic encounter, which we are, I think, somewhat well acquainted with. But we're going to, once again, approach it with fresh eyes. Okay, so let's begin on page 174. Okay, and we'll start on verse 22. Okay, Perak Lamed Bez, Pasak Chaf Bez. Okay, page 174 or 175 if you'd like. And it's verse 22, okay? So, v'ta'avor ha-mincha al-panav. The tribute that Yaakov had prepared went before him. In other words, he sent the tribute to Esav and it went before him. V'hulan balayla hahu b'machaneh. And Yaakov went ahead and he slept that night in the camp. In other words, the night before, he, they, they went to sleep right? Which is what you do. You try to sleep. I'm sure there was a lot of anxiety, which we'll get to in a moment, but he went to sleep. He went to sleep that night. Verse 23, again, page 174, page 174, verse 23. Vayakam balaylahu. Yaakov then got up in middle of that night, okay? Vayikach eshtenashav, veshteshivchosav. He takes his two wives, his two maidservants, meaning the four spouses that he has, veshachad asar yiladav, and his 11 children, and he um, crossed the stream of Yabok, or the ford of Yabok. Okay, so he wakes up in the middle of the night, and he takes his family, his wives, and his children, and he crosses over the stream of Yabok. Okay, and so one thing we're going to have to ask ourselves, well, let's, let's discuss a couple of things. First of all, why is he doing this in the middle of the night? We'll come back to that in a moment. But one thing that we have to ask ourselves is that how many children did Yaakov have at this point? He had 12. He did not, the 12th son wasn't born yet. The 12th son is going to be born soon, but he has 11 sons and one daughter. And there is only a mention of 11 sons. So there is an interesting medrash that suggests that the 12th child, which is his daughter, Dina, 
was actually hidden away, that although she was there, Yaakov wanted to make sure that Esav would not see her. He was afraid that Esav would see her and want to marry her, and, and, that was, and that's why he hid her away. Okay, he didn't want to get involved, didn't want to create any form of a relationship with Esav. And the commentators struggle with this. Some do see this in a negative light. They say, had Yaakov allowed this uh, union to take place, it may have actually changed the course of history. Esav, with the influence of someone like Dina, could have perhaps, uh, you know, something very different could have come out of this episode. And Esav, with a, married to someone like Dina, who knows? Who knows? It could have been a very, very different outcome. So Yaakov is taken to task just a little bit for hiding his daughter away. Okay, let's hold off on that. Let's, let's, let's put that away. Another thing that's... I'm sorry, was there a question? Okay, another thing that's interesting is that if he is now traveling, they're going towards Esav, right? So let's look at, let's look at that Pasuk again. It says, Vayakom Balailahu, he wakes up that night, verse 23, Vayikach es he takes his wives and then his sons. Now, what's interesting is that you would think if you are going to encounter, if you're going to encounter Esav, who should be in the front? Again, one of his big concerns is that Esav is going to attack, right? So who should be in the front? The sons. The sons, as we know from the next passage, which we're not going to study together, are not little boys. They're warriors themselves. They, in the next passage, which we're not going to read today, they decimate an entire city. The city of Shechem is wiped out by two of the sons. These are warriors. They're not little boys. Okay? So you would think it should say he takes them across Mavar Yabok, this, this, uh, the ford, this, this, uh, river of Yabok, and he takes his 11 sons and his four wives because they should be in the front. The sons, the warriors should be in the front. So what do you think? You would supposedly protect his wives you're saying he might be in front of everyone else. You're saying if he's in the front. Okay, so it's interesting. It doesn't tell us where he is. And we know it sounds like he's going back and forth. So I'm not sure. I, I, in theory, that would make sense. That would be good if he would be leading them. But at this point, he takes the wives over, it seems. Then he takes the sons over. And it seems like he's leaving them quite vulnerable because we know he himself is going to go back again to pick up some of the small jugs in just a moment, which we're going to read about in just a moment. So again, this doesn't seem to be too chivalrous. Uh, we would imagine him, uh, you know, it would make more sense if he were to go ahead and leave his, uh, leave, put, put the boys, the men in the front and then the women. Okay. Any thoughts, any suggestions, any other suggestions? So there, there's another, the Chumash, there are Chumashim on the Bima, the center Bima, uh, right over there. And we're on page 174. So one possible suggestion, a very, very interesting one, something that the Chizkuni suggests is that the reason he puts the women in the front is because he is setting them up as a shield of compassion. Okay, so you may not appreciate, you may not like this approach. You'd be like, wait, if I was his wife, I would not appreciate being used as a shield of compassion. But nonetheless, that is the approach that the Chizkuni takes. And he brings an interesting proof. He says that when Yaakov is running away from Lavan, Last, in last week's Parsha, we find there the opposite. The women are in the back. Why are they in the back? Because there he is being chased, right? He's not confronting someone. Lavan is chasing him. So he places the women in the back because that would be the first group that Lavan encounters. And perhaps Lavan would have more compassion when he sees the women. So similarly over here, he wants to put the women in the front as a shield of compassion. Now, again, you may say, mm, I don't like that, but that's, that's one answer to this, uh, to this, uh, to this question. Much from 
Okay, or maybe, uh, well, ultimately we know that, yeah, that Esav is compassionate, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a strategy. Is it, is it the right strategy? You know, we could, we could debate it, but you're right. He's, he's concerned. He's using every tool at his disposal, every trick at his disposal to try to ensure that Esav doesn't attack. Yes? How can you tell from the Pesach where he placed the people? From the precedent, from the fact that it says the women first, and then again, he's crossing over a stream. So it says, Vayikach, the, the Torah had two ways it could have said this. It could have said, Vayikach es, uh, he took his children and his wives. Instead it says, he took his wives and his children. So the implication is, exactly, from the sequence. The fact, sorry, thank you for, for making me clarify that. The fact that it says the women first implies that they are actually first. If they weren't first, it should have said the boys first. Interesting. Okay, so now let's ask the other question, which we, we alluded to before. And that is, why is he doing this in the middle of the night? Right? We, we all ever know, everyone, what's going to happen next is the very famous scene where Yaakov wrestles with this angel, okay, in the middle of the night. But we read in verse 21, or 22, excuse me, that he went to sleep, okay? Then we find him waking up. What's going on? Why, why is he doing this in the middle of the night? Not get caught. Okay, so he's doing it perhaps as a strategy, right? He wants to travel at night. Now, again, is he not getting caught? It would seem he's, work, he's marching towards... Asaph. So who is he afraid of getting caught from, right? In other words, he, he knows that he's coming at him. Okay, he wants to come at him with less, uh, le- uh, more surprise, perhaps. Okay, that's, that's fair. Any other thoughts? In terms of, so what, one question that some have, if, if you take that approach, the challenge to that would be as follows. If he was doing this strategically, if he was traveling a night strategically, then what would make, then, then what we read in verse 22 is a little bit hard to understand because verse 22 says, Vuhulan that he went to sleep and then he woke up. In other words, if he was doing, if you have a flight to catch, you know, at three in the morning, you don't go to sleep. You wait up, right? Right? So you stay up, right? We've all been there. We have a flight at six in the morning. We also didn't go to sleep sometimes, right? But, but, but exactly, right? So, so if he was doing this on purpose, he should have stayed up. Instead, it says he goes to sleep and then he wakes up later. So what's, what's going on over here? And this leads Rav Hirsch to suggest that Yaakov actually, we can relate to this on some level, was interest. This wasn't deliberate. He wasn't planning on traveling at night. He was planning on staying overnight and then traveling further during the day. But in the middle of the night, he wakes up and he can't sleep. He's just so overwhelmed with anxiety of encountering Esau that he says, forget it, let's keep on traveling. And he wakes them up and he starts continuing on his way because sleep is not, uh, is not happening. Sorry? Poor wife, poor kids. Yeah, it seems a little silly. Yeah, it's your problem. Go back to sleep, Yaakov. Okay, no, but but okay, he was the man of the house, and so that that's that's our first understands that that he was he was just too uneasy, and so he went forward. Okay, let's keep on reading. Vayikachem, he took them. Verse twenty-four. Vayikachem, he took them. Vayaviremes anachal. He crosses over again this this river. Vayaver es asherlo, and he takes everything that he has. Okay, so he takes his children again. He takes his wives first. He then takes his sons and he takes all the items that he has. Pasuk, Chafhe, verse 25, very famous verse. Vayivaser, Yaakov, Levado, and Yaakov remains all alone. Why is he all alone? What's going on over here? And the commentators suggest that he went back. Why? Anyone know? The, the, the Rashi quotes a metric that says he went back for pachim ketanim, for small jugs. He basically took most of his major blow. Again, he's traveling with a huge, you know, he has his, his wife, his, his wives, his kids. It's a big camp and all their belongings and everything. And everything was passed over the river. Ah, I forgot some small stuff. He goes back to get those things. Okay, that's what he went back for. And now he's left all alone. And 
a man wrestled with him. We're not told who this man is just yet, okay? Ad alos hashachar until the morning. Okay, so before we get into who this man is and what's this all about, let me ask you a question. According to this Midrashic reading that he goes back to get small jugs, was this a good idea, a bad idea? What are your thoughts? To go back for small jugs. Not good to be alone. Not good to be alone. Right? It's not good to be alone. And so it seemed to be, maybe it's not problematic to get the small things. Why did he go back by himself? Good question. It seems very strange that he did that. Good. Any other thoughts? Small jugs? Is that, like, the, the notion of getting small jugs, you know, is that, uh, you know, is that something which makes sense or not? You know, our sages say something very interesting about this passage. They say that a true tzaddik, someone who's really righteous, recognizes that every single thing they have is d- divinely ordained. And therefore, they take every single thing seriously. And if God gave me a small jug, if God gave me a small jug, then that means I need to have this jug. And I shouldn't go ahead and just be little, ah, it's just a few dollars, ah, it's just a few cents, whatever. It's just a few small jugs. No, God gave it to me and I take, the, I take my life and I take the world very seriously. And therefore, it was appropriate. It's a sign of his belief in God and his belief that everything that happens is for the right reason. And that's the classic approach. The Kliyakar, it's worth noting, takes the opposite approach. He says, no, it'd be foolish to go back for insignificant items. You're in the middle of a dangerous situation. Okay, if it's easy, yeah, you shouldn't drop money left and right. You shouldn't be wasteful. But in, a, in that context, is important. You know, in, in a vacuum, it's a good idea to, to not lose, uh, not waste money. But to do so in a scenario where, as Irma was pointing out before, there's a little bit of risk involved? No way. And he says that, uh, you know, that, this, that the fact that the person wrestles with him is almost as a consequence for him going back and doing something so foolish. It was foolish, and because of that foolishness, he, get, he gets in trouble, so to speak, with this, with this man. Okay, so two different approaches. That, that would happen to him in the middle of the night? I mean, I'm sorry? Did he have the law that he account for someone? We don't see any indication of that. It seems like this is a surprise. It seems like it's a surprise that he's attacked or by, by this man. Yes? What if inside those small things, small vessels or something very important... And, you know, good things come in small packages. Yes. It could be something really important. Right, right, right. Good. So, right. So, if that, the, the, the implication of the Midrashic read is pachim ketanim implies very insignificant. Very insignificant. There is some more Kabbalistic read of that Midrash which says the pachim ketanim is actually a reference to a holiday we're about to celebrate, a pach shemen. There is the small jugs of oil that, are, that Yaakov is finding, so to speak, in the dark of the night. It's an allusion to the Hanukkah story, but that's not really our approach today, but something just to think about, that this story, according to the, the, the more Kabbalistically inclined, is actually in some way alluding to the Hanukkah story. Again, we're not, this class is not for mysticism, but we'll just keep that in the back of our mind. So um, let's, let's move on a little bit to the question, who is this man? Okay, we all, we all know the story. Yaakov wrestles with an angel. What does this angel represent? What's this all about? Why is this angel wrestling with him? Who is this angel? What do we know? Angel of Esau. Angel of Esau, right? So one classic approach is that this angel is the, is the angel Saro shall, shall Edom. It is, the, it is the ministering angel of Esau. And what this storyline is teaching us is that whatever we're dealing with on a physical plane, there is something else taking place on a spiritual plane. So Yaakov, on the one hand, has to encounter Esau. Right? And at the same time, there is something taking place on a much deeper level, on a spiritual level, between Yaakov and the spirits, the, the, the manifestation, the, the, the energy, the spiritual energy, the angels of 
Asaf. Okay, so what the story really is, is reminding us that there's a world beyond this world. And this, the battle with Asaf is much bigger than just Asaf the person. There's Asaf the idea, the things he represents. And of course, he doesn't just represent Asaf himself. In all of our literature, Asaf is the embodiment, it's the symbol of our later enemies. Okay? In other words, Asaf, whenever we say the word Asaf, you find Asaf in literature, in Jewish literature, liturgical literature. Um, oftentimes, Asaf will be invoked as a, as a name for whichever enemies are attacking us. Okay? Usually through, again, historically, when, when the Jews were living in Europe, right? They're, the, 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 the enemy, the, the, they were being persecuted by the, Christ, by the church, right? And so Asaf was oftentimes the term that we use, we saw the, 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 the physical and, and uh, you know, physical violence that, or that we received and the discrimination being a, that the, the church that was discriminatory was a, I guess, at least an intellectual descendant of Asaph. Even if they weren't biologically descendants of Asaph, they were attacking us. And so this battle, you know, throughout the ages, this battle between Asaph and, and uh, Yaakov, the angel of Asaph and Yaakov is seen as, uh, a representation of all future battles between the Jewish people and the nations around them. Okay, we'll have to think about it in that light. What then is the symbolism of what we're about to read, right? Well, basically we see they're, they're wrestling in toll. Ad alos hashachar, right? What is, the, what is the symbolism of the dawn? When we think about this wrestling match, we're thinking about it much more than just Esav. We're thinking about it as our history with enemy nations, with people who are persecuting us. What it would mean is that Yaakov is, rest- that the Jewish people will wrestle with their enemies until the dawn. What does the dawn represent? The messianic era. That there is going to be an endless struggle, right? We, will, we have to do everything in our might to fight against anti-Semitism. And at the same time, a passage like this reminds us that there's also some inevitability about anti-Semitism. Where it'd be silly and foolish of us to say, okay, it exists and therefore I'm not going to do anything. No, that's dumb, right? Of course you have to fight back. But at the same time, we have to be sober and realize that there's going to be constant anti-Semitism. And that's what this passage would be teaching us. The wrestling match between Yaakov and Esav's angel is m- much bigger than the story. It's an eternal or long-lasting battle between the Jewish people and their enemies. Okay? That's one way of reading this passage. Any other symbolisms behind this angel? Any? I remember my mother used to say, people who refuse to give to Jacob, not to Jacob as a person, must give to Esau. If you're not giving to charity, there'll be other, other ways that you'll have to give. Interesting, 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 interesting. So okay. I never realized that until you were explaining it to me. Now. Right, Esau is just a symbol. Of- Very good. Very good. Right. And that's presumed that that notion of Esav is just always a representation for all the very good. Very good. So there's another similar approach where many see this battle, not so much against Esav and external enemies, but rather it is an internal battle. The Ish, the angel represents the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination. And what Yaakov is engaging in over here is an internal struggle. It's not so much about the enemies of the Jewish people, be it Esav or future enemies. It's more about the internal struggle that he's having. He's left alone, and here he is waging war internally with his own evil inclination. Uh, that's what this story represents. Okay, so two very different approaches over here. Is it about our external enemies, or is it more what we'll call our internal enemies? Either one, we have this long-lasting struggle between them, and we'll try to think about this story in light of those two approaches, Okay. One, yeah, sorry. Yeah? Oh, um, okay, one, one last point, which I think is fascinating. And that, what, what ends up happening, right? We know that they fight back and forth. The angel ultimately hits his leg, right? He ends up limping, right? That's the end of the story, fine. Before we read that inside, I just want to mention one other approach. We mentioned Rav Hirsch, 
who said that Yaakov is waking up in the middle of the night because he's anxious, right? And that, that's why he's waking up in the middle of the night. The Rambam, the Rambam, Maimonides, has a fascinating approach over here. The Rambam believes that there is no such thing as a physical manifestation of an angel. Okay, this is a philosophical idea based on his, uh, seeing, based on Aristotelian thought. There's no notion of an angel in a physical representation. No such thing exists. There is no such thing as an angel appearing to someone. It cannot happen. That, that's how the Rambam, now, most disagree, but that's the, I mean, most disagree and say, no, an angel, an angel could appear. An angel could take on physical form. The Rambam says an angel cannot take on physical form. If that's the case, what happened over here? See what the Rambam says? Rambam says this entire thing was a prophetic dream, okay? It was a prophetic dream. Whatever the symbolism of that angel, whether it's Esav or the Yitzhahara, it doesn't matter. The point is that according to the Rambam, this didn't actually take place in real life. Yaakov, not a, I'm not gonna use the word imagine it, it was a prophecy, but there was a prophetic vision, which would go back to the fact we asked, what's he doing waking up in the middle of the night? And according to the Rambam, this fits very nicely. You know what the Rambam would say? He didn't wake up in the middle of the night. He was still sleeping. All right, you asked the question. Okay, fine, you have anxiety. Get over it. Uh, no, okay, okay, that's not nice. Okay, uh, I take that back. Uh, fine, it's not always so simple to get over. I get it. I'm sorry. That was not, that was not right. My point is that, is this really, where, you know, is this really what Yaakov should wake up his whole family because he can't sleep? That doesn't seem right. So the Ramam says no. The Ramam says what he's doing over here is he's dreaming, he's dream, again, prophetically dreaming this whole episode takes place by Yaakov, him, him waking up, him wrestling, all of that is just part of a prophetic dream. That's the Rambam's approach. And again, it goes back to this idea that angels, and which, by the way, goes back to another story in Bereshus, when the three angels appear to Avraham, right? So the Rambam there too says, it didn't happen. There's no angels that came. All of that was part of a vision, which, by the way, um, addresses addresses the following interesting oddity in the beginning of the Parsha. It says, the beginning of that Parsha, Vayera elav Hashem, you don't have to look at it. In the, when the angels appear, it says, Vayera elav Hashem be'eloni mamre, God appears to Avram in eloni mamre, and he's sitting at the door of his tent, and he looks up and he sees three angels. And everyone asks, what happened to God? Right? And then he runs over to the angels, he invites them in, blah, blah, blah. Didn't God just come appear to him? Right? Like, isn't he talking to God? Isn't God like, Talk, communicating to him. And so everyone answers, yeah, he was communicating to God. And then he ran to, because Hachanas uh, Orchim, inviting guests is more important. So he broke off. He said, God, hold on one second. And he ran to take care of the guests. There are different approaches dealing with this. According to the Ramam, it reads beautifully. God appeared to him. What was the appearance of God? This whole prophetic vision. What, he's, what we're about to read, the angels are coming and coming to his house. So that's the, Ramba, that's the Ramam's consistent approach. Whenever you see angels appearing, it never takes place in real life. It's always a prophetic vision. Yes. What about the Akedah? Good, good. So, you, good, so you have to say, there was no angel that appeared. Even there, there that, that one's not as problematic because there he hears a voice. The angel says, Avram, Avram. There's no appearance of an angel there, right? The Rambam's issue is not, the Rambam believes in angels. The Torah talks about angels. The Rambam is disagreeing with, is there a notion of a physical manifestation? The story of angels appearing somewhere, right? Now, it's worth mentioning, what, what questions do you have on this approach of the Rambam? How would he explain the leg injury? Yeah, right? And why do we not eat the gin on Good. So, so says, says the Ramban, what are you talking about? He says, You're, this is crazy. He says, oh, so many things. First, let's go back to the story of the three angels that appear to Avram. Fine. So they come to Avram's tent and they appear, you know, it's part, part, part of a dream. He says, first of all, if it's part of a prophetic vision, like what's the symbolism of them eating all this food? You tell me all that's part of a dream? And then worse, what happens the next, those same angels go where? They go to Sodom and they grab Lot. Right? And they take Lot out of the city. 
Says the Ramban, that's all part of a dream? Did Sodom get destroyed or not? Which, when did the dream end and reality start? He said, it doesn't make sense. And then he asks Elliot's question, question. He says, wait a second, how could Yaakov be limping after a dream, right? That doesn't make sense. Now, the Barbanel, I believe it is, and others point out with something we know, uh, it's well documented now, and that is that you could, I don't know if you ever experienced this. It's, 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 you could be Charlie or not, but you're good, but you could, you could have a, a dream that is so vivid could actually have an, a physical, physical impact on us. So it's possible. It's strange. It's possible. But these are, so the Ramban, Nachmanides, does not like this approach of Maimonides. Um, and most disagree, but it's certainly a fascinating approach that's worth thinking about. Okay? With that in mind, let's go a little bit further. Again, we have two approaches, and we're going to have to understand, according to both of them, that this angel is either angel of Esav, representing Esav himself or all future enemies of the Jews, or the Yetzirah. Let's read the next verse in light of that. So, Vayar Kilo Yachalo, Pasuk Havav. And the angel saw that he could not overcome Yaakov. Vayigah Bechaf Yerecho. And so he hit him uh, at the socket of his hip. Okay? Vateka Kaf Yerech Yaakov. And his hip socket was dislocated. Ve'avko Imo, when he wrestled with him. Right? So the angel rec- recognized that he cannot overcome Yaakov. And so instead, boom, he injures him by his thigh, by, by the top of his thigh. Okay? Now, again, we could read it as, as children and just say, okay, they're wrestling and, you know, that's what he did. But if this is a symbolic fight, whether we take the Rambam's approach or everybody else's approach, he's fighting with, a, with an angel over here. This isn't worldwide, you know, this isn't the wrestling foundation. There's obviously symbolism where we have to ask ourselves, what's the symbolism of the angel hitting his thigh. Like, what is that teaching us, right? Um, so, so, right, we have to understand what, what exactly it means. So the Ramban under, doesn't get into the particulars of the thigh. He says the symbolism of Esav's angel, if we go with that approach, being able to hit him in the thigh, demonstrates that there is, that although ultimately Yaakov will overcome Esav, and what that means is that ultimately the Jewish people will overcome their enemies, it's not to say that there won't be consequences. It's not to say that there won't be casualties in the process. The notion of the thigh, something we stand on, means that it's, we're going to get to the finish line, so to speak, but it's not going to be easy. We're going to be limping all the way there, right? Meaning the Jewish, Jewish history is one of survival, perseverance, regrowth, but as we know, with a lot of tragedy in the process. And that's what this angel hitting him in the thigh represents. Yes, Yaakov will prevail, but it will be far from easy. That's one approach. That's if you take the approach that Esav represents the enemies of the Jewish people and it's a symbolism for all of time. If we take the approach that this angel is a representation of his Yetzirah's evil inclination, then what's the notion of the thigh? So the Malbim and Reino Bechaya suggests that, as Babachia suggests as follows, and that is that the thigh oftentimes in in, uh, Jewish literature refers to the sexual drive and what this means is that although Yaakov and the Jewish people overcome their Yetzirah, their evil inclination, the one realm which will pose the greatest difficulty is that realm, okay? That could be said on a global level, but also on a personal level to Yaakov, there's one sin that Yaakov commits. Biblical sin. Again, the Torah wasn't given yet. He's not obligated to keep the Torah, but if he were to be obligated to give the Torah, keep the Torah, what would be one biblical sin that he... he tra- married two sisters. sisters. Excellent, right? So in the realm of intimacy, he sinned. And therefore, the commentator suggests the reason that his thigh 
which represents, you know, the, the sexuality, the reason that part is impacted is because ultimately Yaakov does overcome his Yetzirah Hara's evil inclination, but specifically in that realm, he falls short. Okay? Those are two different approaches explaining what the significance of his uh, being hit in the thigh area. Again, either if it's about the enemies of the Jewish people, we will prevail, but it will not be easy. Alternatively, if it's about the Yetzirah, it's about the fact that he is successful, but that's one area, the area of Arayot, the area of sexuality, where he's not entirely successful. Let's finish this story, and then we're going to come back and read it, by the way. A totally different way, but we'll get there first. Okay, Shalchini, the angel, verse 27. The angel says, send me away. The sun is rising. Yaakov says, I will not send you until you bless me. Okay, so what are these? Uh, so let's see the dialogue. So the angel says, what is your name? Yaakov, and he says, my name is Yaakov. We know he's called Yaakov because of the fact that he holds on to the heel of his brother. And later on, Esav says about Yaakov, he says, you know why he's called Yaakov? Because the word Akev also can mean like tricks. He says, he tricked me up. He tripped me twice. He basically tricked me. So the word Yaakov represents him being by the heel and being a trickster, being someone who is kind of circumventing, going through the back door. That's what the name Yaakov represents. Someone who is not so frontal. Someone who is always doing something in like a backhanded type of way. So let's see how the angel responds. Vayomer, the angel says, Lo Yaakov, Yomer Ochemecha, your name should not be Yaakov anymore. Kiim Yisrael, your name should be Yisrael. Why? Kisarisa, because you overcame. How do they, they translate it? Uh, you have stri- stri- strive. Okay, so either you struggled or Sarisa from the word Sar, meaning a prince, you overcome. Im Elohim, Vim Anashim, Vatuchal. You struggled and overcame with. Elohim. What does Elohim mean? How do that, they translate it? They translate it as with the divine. Okay, good. So many commentators understand im Elohim, meaning things which are divine, meaning who? Meaning the angel, right? Yaakov's claim to fame is he wrestled with an angel. How many people could say, you know, it's one thing to beat another person, right? Yaakov wrestled with an angel, right? And he overcame the angel, right? So the simple read over here is that you wrestled with an angel and with people. Who are the people? Lavan, soon to be. Esav, Vatuchal, and you were successful. So the name Yaakov and Yisrael have very different connotations. Yaakov is basically someone doing something in a circumventing fashion, not as uh, straightforward, more under the table, more deceitful. And Yisrael means, no, you're, you're wrestling, you're going fr- face forward, you're dealing with the issues, and you are successful. Okay? Fine. Vayishal Yaakov, let's finish this passage. Vayishal Yaakov, Vayomer Hagid Yaakov then turns to this angel and says, what is my name? Vayomer, and the angel responds, Lama Zatisha Lishmi, why do you ask my name? Vayvarach Ososham, and he blessed him over there. Now, why doesn't he answer a name? What's this all about? Why does the angel say he has no name? So let's go back to two approaches of what this angel represents. Either this angel represents the enemies of the Jewish people. So, according to the Ramban, you know what the answer then of the angel not having a name is? What the angel is saying is don't get caught up in who your enemy is. In other words, you think it's because, you know, the Egyptians don't like you because of this and this, uh, you know, way of life that you have, which is different than the Egyptians. And you think the Germans don't like you because this and this and it's against the Germans. And you think the Russians don't like the angel, which represents the enemies of the Jewish people. Basically, are saying it's not about the particulars. I am just an angel. I'm just a messenger. Right? We say don't shoot the messenger. What the angel is effectively telling Yaakov is don't get caught up in who I am, what I look like, what I represent. 
Ultimately, God is behind the scenes. God is the one who is directing these nations against you. And therefore, again, of course, we have to fight back against anti-Semitism and things of that nature. But we also have to recognize that ultimately God's behind the scenes. And what we really have, to, in addition to fighting physically and pushing back physically, we have to turn to God. Because, and that's what the angel is saying. The angel is saying, it's not about me. Don't ask me my name. It doesn't matter if the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Romans or the Germans or the Egyptians. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, if something's happening, God is behind the scenes. And what the angel is trying to do is redirect our focus of who our real enemy is and what we have to do when we face an enemy. Yes, again, we do have to speak up and speak out and, and do whatever we can, but ultimately we have to turn to God in prayer and that's one way of understanding what the angel is saying. There's an alternative possibility. Again, if the angel represents the Yetzirahara, then what does it mean the angel doesn't have a name? And so here, another way of explaining this is that if we look at it from that second approach, then, then what's happening over here is the angel is saying, I don't have, evil does not have an identity. Evil does not have an identity. Evil, and hear me out over here. Evil is not something which is real. It's something, think about so many of the things that we fail in, right? Usually there's something which perhaps we're excited we want to do. And then after we do it, do we have a sense of satisfaction? No, usually we're filled with, I shouldn't have said that. I'm filled with guilt. I shouldn't have eaten that. I'm filled with guilt. I shouldn't have, right? And then we're filled with guilt. Before, it's exciting. Afterwards, we feel empty and sometimes even much worse than before. Why is that? Because so much of evil is just in our head. So much of evil is just in the imaginative uh, faculty. It's not real, right? Kabbalistically, we see evil as a leech. It doesn't have any existence of its own. You know, there's something fascinating in the laws of tsaras, of leprosy, right? There is this halachic, le- in the Torah, it has a whole section about a person who has leprosy, right? These white spots. And if they have this spot, they're tame, they're impure, and they have to leave the camp. Okay, they can't be around anyone else, right? There's a whole section in, in the book of Ayikra about this spiritual leprosy, what we call tsaras. There's a wild halacha, wild law. The law is that if a person's entire body from top to bottom is covered in leprosy, you know what the halacha is? You know what the law is? What would you think? I would say they're super impure. They're super tame. They should go like live across the world. They're terrible. You know what the halacha is? The halacha is they are pure. Nothing happens to them. Bizarre. If they have nine, out of, nine tenths of their body covered in these spots, they're impure. They're tame. They're impure. If they have their entire body covered in these spots, by definition, they are pure. What's going on over here? And so Rabbi Dean Steins, I'll come to your point in one second. Rabbi Dean Steins suggests the following. He suggests that if we recognize leprosy as just one manifestation of evil, as long as it's on a healthy body, we can say, okay, evil is leeching on that body. But if it covers the entire body, then, and it, it exists on its own, it doesn't have anything pure, anything healthy to live on, then by definition, it cannot be evil. Because evil doesn't have its own existence. Evil is a leech. Evil has to live on something else. And so if an entire body from top to bottom is covered in saras, by definition, it cannot be something which is impure because something which is impure has to have something pure to live on. Right? This is thinking about it more abstractly. But the point is the same. The point is that evil is something which doesn't really exist as something substantial. It's something we imagine. And that's why, again, before we do something wrong, we're so excited, we're driven, and then afterwards we feel empty because so often it's not, there's no substance there. It's just, it's just living here. And so with the angel, we're getting back to the angel. The angel is saying, don't ask, I don't have a name. 
a name is my essence, right? What's in a name? Everything's in a name, right? Who we are, what, a shame. You know, in Hebrew, when we say a shame, which means name, is sham. It's there. It shows your, your permanence. Like a name is really what roots us. It, what's, it, what's, it's what defines us. And what the angel is saying, I don't have a name. Evil doesn't have a name. Evil doesn't have true existence. It's a figment of our imagination. It drives us. It draws us. But it's not real. And that's the powerful lesson that the angel is teaching Yaakov. Yes, sorry. I'm not sure. It's it's basically like a skin. Mm. It's a skin condition that people are born with, and it causes you to have like spots on your like skin from head to toe. Interesting. Okay. And it like so you have like dark spots, and then you have ones that are like very mm-hmm. very like white. Mm-hmm. So like usually when it starts, it starts like small. It mm-hmm. will start off like from your head. Right. You start in small places, mm-hmm. and then it tends to. Yeah, so I would so nowadays like any any spots a person has nowadays, we, we assume that those are not the Taras that the Torah is talking about. Meaning the the leprosy the Torah is talking about is a very uh, particular and unique. A, it's unique to the land of Israel, but also according to the commentators, whatever it is that they're describing in those sections was unique to the time that the temple stood. So if someone has any form of spots, skin, whatever, a person should not see that as a reflection of any personal flaw. It's a skin condition, and uh, I will leave it at that. It's not a religious skin condition. We don't, we don't, any, any skin condition that a person has nowadays would not be a, a, not be in that category. So a person shouldn't think that, that it is. Okay. Um, so let's, let's go for, let's, let's finish this section. Pasuk Lamed Aleph, Vayikra Yaakov Shem Hamakum Peniel, verse 31. Yaakov calls the place that he encountered this angel as Peniel, Kira Isi Elokim Panima Panima Tinatzel Nafshi. I saw an angel. Um, and uh, face to face, and I was um, I was saved. In other words, the angel didn't harm him; he was saved. lo hashemesh, and the sun started to shine, meaning the sun started to rise. Kasher avares penuel when he traveled past penuel vuhu solea al yerecho, and he was limping on his thigh. Okay, so that's so far. I've explained the passage. What I would say in the simplest, not simple, but but the classic approaches. Okay, that either that art, that struggle with the angel was um, the Yetzirah Harad, the evil inclination, or the or the or the the Sarosal of the the representation of of all the enemies of the Jewish people. We asked a question, and that is, what is he doing getting up at night? Why is he getting up at night? So we saw two approaches. One was Rav Samson Rafal Hirsch, who said he was anxious, he was nervous. We saw the Rambam who said that no, he wasn't nervous. The whole thing was just part of a prophetic dream. There's a third approach. It's my favorite approach. It's an amazing approach. The Rashbam, the Rashbam, well, it's an acronym. He is the grandson of Rashi, okay? He suggests, and he proves this textually from other sections with very similar terminology. He suggests that Yaakov, when he's waking up, he is not crossing Ma'avar Yabok, this, this river, to go close, again, Esav's over here, Yaakov's over here, right? So the way we imagine this whole narrative is that Esav is traveling this way, Yaakov is traveling this way, he sleeps at night, wakes up in the night, he crosses over the river, and now he's closer to Esav. Rashbam says we're misunderstanding the story entirely. You know what he's doing? He says, Yaakov is over here, Esav is over here, the river is over here. He is not waking up in the middle of the night and going closer to Esav. You know what he's doing? He's running away. The story, and again, I don't know if we, you know, we normally think he wakes up in the middle of the night and, and continues, no, no, no. The Rashbam says, similar to a verse, he wakes up in the middle of the night, he's scared, but he's scared and therefore doesn't continue traveling. 
And now we can understand why he wakes everyone up. He wakes up and says, you know, yeah, I planned. I sent the, the gifts and I'm prepared for war and I dive in. But you know what? I'm petrified. I don't want to do it. And basically he gets up on the night. He says, I'm running away. Right? And by the way, according to this approach, this addresses the question, one of the first questions we asked. We asked, why is it or how is it that Yaakov places the women first? Right? So let's think this through. If it is the classic approach, Yaakov is over here. The river, let's pretend my sheets are the river. Yeah, Yaakov is over here. The river is over here. And Esav is over here. And the Torah said he lets the women go. He sends the women first. So then the women are closer to Esav. He's endangering them, right? So he said maybe it's, a, maybe it's a human shield, you know, a shield of compassion. Okay. But if the goal is, if really he's running away and the women are first, then the women are actually well protected. They're in the back, right? Because the men are still here, right? So according to this approach, it actually makes a lot more sense. Let's go further in the narrative, okay? We said that the angel wrestles with Yaakov. What does it represent? So one approach says it represents the eternal battle or the limited battle with Esau or the eternal battle with all the enemy nations. Or it represents the eternal battle with the Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination. According to the Rashbam, you know what the wrestling match of the angel actually is? The angel is trying to stop him. The angel is there not for some global idea, you know, big, big eternal. No, no, no. Yaakov is running away and it's crucial that Yaakov goes and encounters Esav. And now Yaakov's running away and this has to happen. So the angel attacking him, wrestling with him, is slapping him, right? Which now let's move it to the next stage. Where does he ultimately hit him? In the thigh. Not in the arm, not in the nose, not in the ear. What's significant of the thigh? He can't run away. It's the most practical, simple, straightforward approach. It flips the whole story in its head. It gives a very different story of who Yaakov is, right? We, last week, we spent some time explaining that Yaakov is ready to confront his, his brother. And he is. He, he's so prepared. He does everything. He's ready. To, but he wakes up in the night. He says, oh, I can't do this. I can't do this, right? We can start relating to Yaakov a little bit more, right? He's like, ah, yeah, I, I just can't do it. And he starts running away. And the angel comes and says, no, you have to do it. And the angel punches him in the thigh to make sure that he cannot run to ensure that he will ultimately meet up with Esav. Okay? So far, so good. Okay, it's a wild approach. It's a wild approach. Now, Nechama Leibowitz, Professor Nechama Leibowitz, is the play, I didn't see this in the Rosh, I initially I didn't see this in the Rosh, but I saw this in, in, her, um, in her book. And she quotes this, but then asks the following question on this approach. Okay, let's take that, let's assume this approach is all correct. Okay, let's go through it. Yaakov wakes up in the night because he's afraid. And he runs, he brings the women to protect them. Then he brings the men to protect, yeah, and then, and then he's left alone and he's about to run. The, the angel comes and says, uh-uh, you're not running anywhere and starts beating him up, starts holding him back to prevent him and finally hits him in the leg to hold him back. Fine. And then Yaakov is able to overcome the angel, okay? What does the angel do at the end? The angel blesses him. Now, if you say this story represents our eternal battle, the Jewish people's eternal battle with their enemies, okay, blessing him makes sense. The Jewish people are going to be successful. If you say it's him battling evil, internal evil, and he overcomes evil, yeah, you deserve a blessing. But if the idea is that he's running away and he, he's able to get the angels trying to beat him up out of his way and you know, not, not allow the angel to completely overcome him, you get a blessing for that? That doesn't make sense. Right? So all the first parts of the story are beautiful, but Nechama Leibowitz points out that last point, why is he getting a blessing over here? That doesn't make any sense. Right? The story was great until that point. If, if, if the goal over here was just to stop him from running away and Yaakov is able to basically overcome the angel, why is he receiving a blessing? That's the question she asks and therefore she rejects this approach. But I want to suggest one possible way of saving this approach and that is if you go back 
It's the bottom of page 174 or 175. Um, you know what? Actually, um, actually, it's the top of page 176. My apologies. The first words on page 176. And uh, the, the verse before told us that they were wrestling. Okay, it says, The Torah tells us they're wrestling. And then the Torah says that, that the angel dislocated his hip. Okay? Be'avko, and here's in the Hebrew and in English, Be'avko imo, as he wrestled with him. What, what do you mean, as he wrestled with him? We know, that, which said the verse before, they were wrestling, and then he hit him in the thigh. Why does it have to repeat, as he wrestled with him? It doesn't seem to make, doesn't seem to add anything. So, so the Nitziv suggests that there is a little shift in the wrestling match. You know, there's two ways that, uh, that you, could, you could fight with someone. One is defensive, and one is offensive. The Nitziv suggests that the first part of the wrestling match, Yaakov is just defending himself. Yaakov is defending himself. He doesn't want this angel attacking him, whatever approach you take, and Yaakov is kind of pushing him away. But at the end of the battle, Yaakov starts to fight back. Yaakov starts to struggle with the angel. In other words, now he is, again, not letting the angel go, right? If the goal is just to defend himself, your attacker now wants to run away. Sayonara, see you later. Who cares, right? Run, right? But now we see that there's a shift. Ko Imo represents this moment where Yaakov starts fighting offensively, and that's where the angel says, let me go. He says, uh-uh, I'm not letting you go. I'm holding on to you. So let's think this through according to this approach that we're suggesting of the Rashbam. I'll suggest what, what this could possibly mean. Let's go with this approach. Yaakov does wake up in the middle of the night and he's afraid. He takes his family and starts to go back. He's going to go back to Pad. I don't know where he's going. He doesn't know where he's going to go, but he's not going to Aesop. He's afraid. And he's about to leave himself and the angel comes and says, you're not going anywhere and starts wrestling with him and holding him back. And Yaakov's defending himself, defending himself, defending himself. And then at one point he says, you know what? Fine. I am going to go and encounter Asaf. But you, this angel, who is this angel in this approach? It's just a representation of God. It's just a, a shliach, a messenger of God. He says, fine, I'm going to go back, but you are coming with me. I cannot do this on my own. And he starts wrestling with the angel basically as a way of saying that I'm fighting with God. I'm going, God, you cannot desert me. I want an assurance from you, God, that things are going to be okay. Right? So what happens over here is that the first stage, he's just trying to get away from the angel. Then he says, fine, you know what? I am ready to, count, to turn things around. I am ready to encounter Asaph like you want me to do, but I will not do so without a blessing from you, without you, God, being here with me. And so, by the way, which explains, what does he say about this, this, uh, about this, uh, about this uh, place? He says, and even the name, the name Israel is why? Because Kisarisa im Elohim vein anashim batuchal, because you wrestled with whom? The most interpreters say, im Elohim means angels. Elohim, the word Elohim could mean anyone of importance. But according to this approach, we could say it means it literally. He's wrestling with God. He's basically telling God, he's not fighting with his Yetzir Hara, he's not fighting with the evil inclination. He's telling God, you put me in this lousy situation, get me out of here and stay with me. Right? And basically what he's saying is that, yes, I'm in a very, very difficult situation. We could, as you know, and, and this is so, this, this, this new read, I think to me, makes it so powerful and, and pertinent. And that is that we could, during difficult situations, say, God has deserted me. God is putting me in this difficult situation. I'm going to leave God behind. I don't want to have anything to do with God. What Yaakov does and what Yaakov tr- blazes this trail for us is saying that, no, God, I'm going to wrestle with you. I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to argue with you. I'm going to twist your arm, so to speak, God. I'm not going to just accept this situation sitting. 
I'm not going to ignore you either, right? What Elie Wiesel said, right? The opposite of uh, love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference, right? So, right, when we love someone, we could argue with them. When we have a relationship with someone, we could argue with them. It's only when we have no relationship that we're indifferent. What Yaakov was saying to God is, okay, right now I'm, I'm upset, I'm scared, I'm in a difficult situation. I cannot accept the situation easily. So God, I need you right now and I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to wrestle with you. I'm going to share my complaints, share my issues, share with you all my travails that I've gone through. God, I need your help over here. And that's what we're witnessing over here. And to that read, I think, to me, it makes the story, uh, you know, there, let, let's just quickly review the different versions and whichever one speaks to you, speaks to you. But I think each one of these versions has, has such a global message and a very pertinent message. So let's go through the approaches. The classical approach is that either in real life or in a dream, Yaakov is waking up in the night and he is going towards Esav. And this represents Yaakov, who is an individual who suffered greatly, um, uh, you know, on the hands of enemies. Re- this, this wrestling match of the angel represents this eternal battle the Jewish people have with their, their enemies. And the imagery, the, the message of the story is that he's going to be limping. He will never be fully successful until the sun rises, until the messianic era, until then we'll succeed, we'll prevail. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hurtful. It's going to be painful. That's one approach. Alternatively, it represents Yaakov's inner struggle and our struggle with our Yetzirah, with our evil inclination. And we're told that ultimately we do have the ability to overcome, but also we're not going to be perfect. There is no perfection. Everyone's going to have their weaknesses. And Yaakov too wasn't perfect. As, as perfect as Yaakov was, Yaakov was seen as the man of perfection, but there's also there's going to be certain flaws. We're going to try, we're going to wrestle, we're going to do what we can to overcome them. But we also have to acknowledge the fact that in this world that we live in, there's imperfection. And no matter how much we struggle, we're going to be dealing with those imperfections. We'll still be limping away. The third approach, the approach of the Rashbam, speaks to, is much more of an emotional approach. Emotional slash relationship approach. It speaks to an individual who is overwhelmed by his circumstances and tries to run away from those circumstances. And God says, no, you need to face your challenges. You need to face those demons. You need to move forward. And what Yaakov says, fine, you want me to do so? I need you. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear because you are with me. That is both a prayer and a plea. While Yaakov is wrestling back with the angel saying, God, fine, you're going to put me in difficult situations. I need you here. I need you here holding my hands. I need you here guiding me. And then I'll be ready to move forward. That is the third very novel, but beautiful approach in terms of the confrontation between the angel and Yaakov. And I hope we learned a thing or two about this passage. Have a wonderful, wonderful Shabbos. And I will see you all sometime soon.